Almighty God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would speak to us this morning, that it would be through your spirit, Lord, as Paul said, do not let the proclamation of your word go forth with mere human eloquence or the wisdom of man, but in the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, so that our, our confidence would not rest on men, but in the power of God. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, speak life to us. Lord, draw us to love you more deeply, be more fully devoted to you. Lord, give our hearts the refreshing that they need so that we can let go of earthly things to love things that are eternal. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to ask you to be reflective for just a moment, to think deeply for just a moment. After that, you don't have to think deeply anymore this morning. But uh, what is... What is at the very core of your being? What is at the very core of your being? If you were to peel back all the layers of your life, what would be at the center of your existence? Think about it. Well, in this passage of Scripture that we just heard from Philippians, that's what Paul is showing us. He opens his heart of heart, and he says that at the very core of his being, the thing that defines his existence is Jesus Christ alone. Now, here is the main point of this sermon from the very get-go. The only life, the only life that makes eternal sense, metaphysical sense, supernatural sense, lasting sense, the only life that is properly ordered and properly integrated is the life that is marked by, and I am choosing my words carefully here, a holy obsession with Jesus Christ. We will be obsessed with something in our lives when we are obsessed with what we were created to be obsessed with, Jesus Christ, life has order and meaning. If our life becomes obsessed with something else, you know, it's going to be disordered or just really geeky. You could be totally obsessed with Star Wars. You know, and some people are. If you're 30 years old and still have Star Wars sheets on your bed, you may have a spiritual problem, all right? <laughs> so something is going to do that. If we are defined by anything else than Jesus Christ, if there's any other person or practice at the heart of our being, whether we will admit it or not, our lives will ultimately be lives of futility and emptiness. But in contrast to that kind of futility, Paul is revealing his core in these verses. And so this is the part of the passage we just heard that we're going to focus on this morning. If you're reading alone in Philipp along in Philippians chapter 3, Philippians 3 verses 7 through 11, that's where we're going to focus. But whatever gain I had, Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You hear that holy obsession with Christ in this passage? 
But the danger for us as human beings is that there are always other things, right? There's always other powers, other desires which are sucking at our souls, seeking, they're drawing us away from following Christ. And some of those other things, those other voices, they seem to be very noble. They can be very noble things. They can be very, seem to be very worthwhile things. But if those things become the definition of our lives, and we'll see what Paul was using prior to his conversion, but if those things become the definition of our lives, they will ultimately turn us into worthless people. So what were those things, those noble and worthy things that Paul used to define himself with before Christ? Well, he actually lists them here. If you want to look back at verses 5 and 6, look at 5 and 6 here. Paul says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, blameless. So before Jesus, what was Paul defining himself by? Religion. Isn't that weird? It's kind of weird, isn't it? That, that before Christ, before Christ, he knew Christ, Paul was defining his life by religion, which seems noble, doesn't it? He was from the right religious background. He talks about his great family. He was, you know, the tribe of Benjamin. My children are of the tribe of Benjamin, too. My name is Ben, FYI. Uh, Benji is from the tribe of Benjamin. Ben Jones is of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin is well represented at Christ Church. And so is the tribe of Jane. I mean, Janes, you are out there in this church in, in mass. So Benjamin or Jane, just say it and you'll probably got the name right. So, but he, had the, he observed the right rituals. He practiced his religion with pious zealousness. And isn't that a good thing? I mean, you know, shouldn't this be the core of one's life? What more... Could there be to a religion, to making that at the center of, of our lives, than this? Well, think about, think about what's missing in Paul's list in this passage. What does he never mention? There's never mention of an intimate relationship with God. An intimate relationship with God is totally ignored. The problem is that Paul's list of Religious accomplishments are all about who? Yeah, exactly, Paul. They're all about Paul. Some of you will know what I mean when I talk about the I love me wall. Anybody know that expression? It's where all your awards and your diplomas and that kind of thing goes, you know, and you put it up on the wall so that you're really impressive. Well, this is Paul's I love me wall. He's just described. It's all about Paul. But do you know what he calls all of these accomplishments later in this passage in verse 8 he calls them rubbish he calls them rubbish americans don't use the word rubbish we use garbage trash you have to go to the united kingdom to have a rubbish bin we have a trash can at my house but paul calls them rubbish except that's not what the word is in the greek the word in the greek is scubala some of y'all know this because i like to say this it's scuba, and it doesn't mean like trash in your trash can. It means filth. It means dung. Paul is saying 
that all of that religious accomplishment compared to intimately knowing the living God through Jesus Christ, all of that personal religious piety, all of that moral uprightness, all of that public service, Paul calls it, and this is the exact impact he wanted to have when he wrote it down like that, he calls that a load of crap. That's Paul, don't blame me. Now, this begs the question, what, what could be the possible attraction of a life, uh, of a religion that is based on personal accomplishments? What is the attractiveness of a religion based on personal accomplishments? Well, that kind of religion enables us, here it is, ready, to remain in control of our lives when it's about religious accomplishment or any other thing than Jesus, it allows us to remain in control of our lives. The very character, the very quality of our human fallenness, our innate sinfulness as human beings, is this. Are you ready? We want, ultimately, deep down inside as fallen people, we want to live independently of God. We want our independence. We have all declared our independence from God. St. Augustine said that our sinful nature, the quality of that sinful nature is this. It is to be incurvatus in se, incurvatus in se, which means to be turned in. Ready? It means turned in on yourself. Sin, the sin nature means that we are naturally turned in upon ourselves so that we are unable and unwilling, turned in on ourselves so that we're unable and unwilling to turn our lives and our affections, our loves, from focusing on ourselves to focusing on God. That's the core of human fallenness. If you go down to the very bottom of it, that's where it is. We are all prone to the very basest form of idolatry, the worship of ourselves, the worship of ourselves. David Foster Wallace, I don't know if that name is familiar to anyone in here. But he was a brilliant and sensitive American author. I don't know that he was a follower of Jesus. I don't think that he was. I do know that he had been attracted to Christianity at some point. But he tragically died, I think about 2008, from a lifelong struggle with mental illness. But he gave a historic address to the graduating class of Kenyon College way back in 2005. In 2005, he gave the commencement address for Kenyon College, and in that speech, he identified our human idolatry. You ready for this? He, he wrote, the so-called real world of men and money and power, hum, the real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Doesn't that sound like it could come out of the headlines? A pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords, this, listen to this phrase, the freedom to all be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms. Alone at the center 
of all creation. This idolatry of the self, I'm the Lord of my own little skull-sized kingdom, but it isolates me when I live that way. I'm alone at the center of all creation. So what really counts, what really matters, is not a religion that knows about God, knows about God, or knows about Jesus, or emphasizes personal accomplishments, but rather that we genuinely know Jesus Christ, to know Christ. Now that word to know, when we hear that word, what are we thinking of? We're thinking of the intellect, aren't we? To, I want to know Christ. We think that's intellect, don't we? We think that has to do with cognition. But in the Bible, that word is used of personal intimacy. As a matter of fact, if you go back and look at the Greek text of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. It's a translation from the Hebrew and in some parts Aramaic into Greek, written about the year 200 B.C. or thereabouts, 175, in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. That translation was made. And when they use that, they use that, that Greek term to know, and they use it as meaning sexual intimacy. So it's not about cognition. It's about a deep joining experience of the other, okay? That's so important. Indeed, Paul says in verse 8, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And the NIV, the New International Version, begins verse 10 like this. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. See, it's kind of like if you, I don't know, grow up, grow up somewhere in the middle of the country and you've always heard about the beach and you've always heard about the ocean and you, you know it, you know about it. You saw it on TV, uh, TV one time. You read about it in the book, uh, you know, in a textbook and, and science class. You know about it. But then some, at some point in your life, God miraculously blesses you to be able to go to North Carolina and then go all the way down to one of our amazing beaches and one of, one of our beautiful beaches. And you have known about the beach, but that is an entirely different thing than getting your feet dug into that wet sand and catching those little sand fleas, you know, those little crustaceans, arthropods, or whatever they are, that dig down in the ground and grabbing those, holding them in your hand, or wading out into the, the water, and picking up a sand dollar, and smelling that salt, and, and, and floating in that, that beautiful ocean, and body surfing on a wave. That's an entirely different thing than knowing about the beach. It's the experience of the beach. Paul says, I want to I body surf in Jesus. I want to dig my toes into Jesus. I want to smell the smell of Jesus and feel his breath on me. Different, different, different. But that's what we're made for. But it's not what we often experience. Because our sinful nature, because of our sinful nature, brothers and sisters, we will use anything, even, listen, religion, to keep Jesus at arm's length. 
But Jesus Christ refuses to be relegated to the margin of our lives. He demands the throne of our existence. He demands our complete devotion. And those statements are terrifying to our sinful nature, to the flesh. For Jesus to say, I want to be completely Lord of your life is terrifying to our fallenness. But we were made to complete, give our complete devotion to something. That's why we're so easily seduced to idolatry. You and I are going to be, think of your life right now, you are going to be devoted to something, even if it is the mean, paltry tyrant of the self. We can deny it, we can rail against it, but we cannot overcome the truth, the reality that we are creatures who are made. Listen, you, you and I are made to be worshipers. We are made to give ourselves away in love to our creator. It is what you are made for. It is the purpose, the telos, the goal of your existence. And if we try anything else other than that, it doesn't, it doesn't end up well. This, there's, a, there's something called teleology, and, uh, and there was a philosopher dude called Aristotle, and he talked about you know, things, things are the, the, the good of a thing is when it's used for its purpose, so to speak. And let me tell you what that means real quick. Um, it's like this. Uh, your, your teeth are made for, for you know, eating food, right? But if, you're, but if you use your teeth to, to, get the, to un, unlatch the stuck-on bottle cap of the Texas peat sauce, now Texas peat, by the way, that's, if you cut Winston-Salem, it bleeds Texas peat. It's made right here. You know, just one of the amazing things about Winston-Salem is this is where Texas peat comes from. Not Texas, Winston-Salem. Right here, there's a, a, an aquifer and an artesian well they drill down into, and Texas peat just bubbles up out of the ground. <laughs> and they bottle that stuff, and it's so good. I love it so much. And, but sometimes that, that top will get stuck on there. It'll get solidified, and you can't get to your Texas peat. And, and you'll take your teeth and stick, it, stick them around the corner of that thing, and you know what you'll do? You'll injure your, break your teeth off because that's not what, me, my, what teeth were made to do. You were made to worship God, the creator. If you use your purpose for anything else, it's ultimately destructive, destructive. Idols promise us independence from our created purpose, but they always lead to self-destructive slavery, always. And we can say, oh, I'm so happy in my independence, when any objective observer will look at us and say, no, you're not. You're miserable. You know, you, even as we're in our misery, we're telling everybody how happy we are about being in bondage. You see, our flesh, our flesh, the sinful nature, our flesh's worst nightmare is true. To intimately know Jesus Christ is to lose my independence and the illusion that I'm in control of my life and my destiny. You know, the independence and control that ends up isolating us and destroying our lives and the lives of those we love. But once the sweetness, listen, of being in that relationship, of intimate relationship with Jesus is ever tasted, and the surprising joy that can only come into and enrich our lives by the intimate knowledge of that other is experienced we never want to go back to self-directed living. When we surrender our independence to Jesus, we actually and counterintuitively 
find what we always wanted, joy and freedom. The devil says, you'll not be free if Jesus is the Lord of your life as he enslaves you to the things that will destroy you. Isn't that right? But when we do find Christ, when we accept him and receive him as Lord and Savior, we find genuine freedom. That relationship is what gives sparkle and zest to life. That relationship is what gives Christianity its excitement and joy. That's why it transcends being some religion of man to being the intimate encounter with the living God for whom we are made. And that's what Paul calls the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Once you have fallen in love with someone, if you've ever done that, once you've fallen in love with someone and begun the process of knowing them, you desire one thing from that relationship, to know them more and more intimately. When I fell in love with my wife, it wasn't like, okay, one date, that's it. I don't, you know, we don't ever need to see each other again. I love you now. No, I couldn't. I just, she was on my mind all the time. And I just couldn't stand being away from her. I wanted to know her more and more. You want, you do not, when you are in love with somebody, you do not want to be independent. Your greatest fear is somehow they're going to let you be independent. <laughs> you want to mingle your life with their life. And in the same way, the more of Jesus we experience, the more of Jesus we desire. That's what Paul says his goal is. He says that he knows Christ and yet he still cries out, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. To know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You know, originally I was going to exegete each one of those phrases very carefully, but then the Lord said, have mercy on your people, and just, you know, don't do that to them this morning. Instead, I think, I think the best way of talking about that is to tell you a story of someone whose life showed what it meant to live the power of Jesus' resurrection, the fellowship of sharing his sufferings and being made like him in his sacrificial death. Some of you have heard me tell about this woman before, and I, if you have, I, I want to remind you, and for those of you who have never heard about her, I want you to, to listen to this. We're coming up on All Saints Day. November 1st is All Saints uh, this year, just like it is every year, November 1st. And we remember those men and women who have shaped our lives in the gospel. And Lona Cates Wood, Lona Cates Wood is the person who I think had one of the most profound impacts on my life. That's who I think of when I hear this scripture. When I was serving my first church way back, uh, I was 24 years old when I was, became the pastor of that church. Can you believe they let a 24-year-old pastor a church? That just sounds, that sounds foolish to me now. I don't know why they did that. But I was serving my first church. It was way out in the country. And she was one of the people who taught me the most about being a shepherd of souls she was the most outrageously joyful Christian I have ever known. We spent many hours with one, with one another in uh, the living room of, and her, I remember her old black and white TV set. I remember uh, her old um, vinyl-covered uh, couch and, the, and then one other chair in that living room. She lived in an ancient log cabin. 
Now, you need to know that people who lived out in the country, and maybe this is still true in some places, you didn't want to, to have an, a log cabin. You, you thought you wanted something fancier than that. Today, you'll go and buy a log cabin at the log cabin lot, right? I mean, seriously, they, they have that. Seriously, they have that. But back then, you covered it up with asphalt shingles that looked like bricks. I don't know if you've ever seen those, but there's these uh, asphalt uh, tiles that look like they, they have red brick on them. You would nail those to your log cabin and say, I'm living in a brick house. And that's what Lona did. We would sit there in that living room of her cabin, and when we were together, our joy in Jesus just burned brighter. She was a, she was a free spirit. She was free from sin. I mean, I know she was a sinner like everybody else, but it didn't just, she just seemed free of it. Free from other people's expectations. She was free from depression, free from the love of money. She was free. And yet she had spent her life in what most people would consider to be slavery, tending to one ailing, sick relative after another. For years, she nursed her bedridden, I'm talking about like a hospital bed in the front parlor of her house, her and her husband, his daddy, her father-in-law, who was an unpleasant man and thoroughly ungrateful for the care he was being shown, she nursed him until the day he died, took care of him, washed him, fed him, gave her life in service to him. And then after he died, she took care of her, uh, of her adult son who was profoundly mentally challenged, developmentally delayed, but just challenged, very, very mentally handicapped until he died of a heart attack living with her in his 50s. And then she cared for her, her brother, her younger brother, Robert, who was similarly profoundly mentally handicapped. And she took care of him until he died in her house at age 82. And then 11 months later, she herself passed away after serving and giving her life away to everybody that was around her, and yet what I would, what the world would see as a life misspent, foolishly misspent, taking care of all those people. How could you ever be happy? She was the most radiant Christian I've ever known. Even to her deathbed, she was concerned about and caring for other people. Lisa and I and our children were so poor during those early years in ministry. And somebody had provided the money for us to go or provided a, a, a place for us to go on a week of vacation. We hadn't had a, a week of vacation since the children had been born, as far as I can remember. And yet uh, we, she was dying at her, in her cabin on her deathbed, dying of cancer, could go any moment. And we finally got the chance to go on vacation. And so I loved her so much. I went to her and I said, Miss Wood, I need you to do something for me, if you would. Please don't go away until I get home. Please be here when I get back. And do you know what? Even on her deathbed, she said, I will. And she did. I mean, she was thinking of her pastor in her last month. It's amazing. She knew the power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings she became like him and giving up her life to the very day of her death. It made no worldly sense whatsoever, but Lona was so identified with Jesus Christ that she was like a pure crystal container from which the light of Christ beamed out. And everybody that knew her felt the way, that way about her. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why would anybody want such a thing? Because, as Paul says, it is the way to resurrection, to transformed life, to victorious living, to the kind of joy that sends shockwaves of God's own merriment throughout all creation. So this morning, brothers and sisters, come to this table, whose, this feast that we're about to share, whose very meat and drink, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, imparts and bestows that kind of joyful victory. We do not have the strength in ourselves to live like Lona Cates Wood did or like St. Paul did. We have to have the grace of God poured into our lives to break the shackles of our love of self and our idolatry of self. There's only one way to do it. It's only by the grace of God, not by any works of righteousness of our own. God has provided this means of grace, this feast of victory, as a place where we can connect with the intimate knowledge and love experience of Jesus Christ, like going to the beach and smelling the salt and digging your toes into the sand and feeling that warm salt water on your body, knowing those things, having that, that tactile experience. At this place, you can touch and taste the presence of Christ and experience the grace he wants you to have in this meal. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.